Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a community dedicated to helping women connect, learn and lead. One of the most exciting ways we do this is at our annual Future Women Leadership Summit. This year's summit was equally thought-provoking and inspirational, offering plenty of practical take-home advice to accelerate your career. If you couldn't make it, don't worry. I'm bringing you the next best thing to being in the room and sharing the highlights from this year's event. In this episode, you'll hear from two extraordinary women who spoke as part of the conference's Big Problems, Big Solutions, Women Changing the Conversation session. Angelique Wan is the co-founder and executive director of Consent Labs, a not-for-profit organisation that aims to change the culture around sexual consent through workshops held at schools across Australia. Angelique talks about the importance of supporting organisations striving for change and practical ways to incorporate the passion and innovation young people can bring into your organisation. Now, just a warning before we start, this discussion has references to sexual assault. Hi everyone, my name is Angie and I'm a co-founder and CEO of Consent Labs which all sounds very formal and very official, but my co-founder, Dr. Joyce, you and I, we didn't start Consent Labs to start an organisation. In 2016 and at the age of 19, we started Consent Labs to change the lived experience of young people for the better. At that time, our own lived experience was one of normalised sexual violence, of trivialised sexual violence. Joyce and I started Consent Labs to start a movement and accelerate the change that we wanted to see in society's attitudes around consent, and more specifically, society's really casual attitudes towards violence against women. As young people spearheading an organisation in a very large institution, Australia's education institution, it has not been without its challenges. And that is an honest truth. Accelerating change in the world, it's hard. The biggest barriers that we kept coming up against was that one, we were young, and for some reason, inherently, that meant that we were untrustworthy and we were not credible. And two, that the sex ed curriculum, it was fine. It didn't need to be changed. And it was really ironic to myself and to Joyce that no one trusted us to comment on the efficacy or the relatability or the relevance of the sex ed curriculum, considering that we had just gone through it and we were living it. You know, we had just gone through school and the sex ed that our school had to offer, you know, putting a condom on a banana was really the extent of it. And we could see in real time and feel the real impact in our lives how the education had failed to set us up. It had failed to enable us to be able to recognise non-consensual behaviour. It had failed to empower us to engage in healthy and respectful relationships and instead it allowed us to settle for toxic ones. And it had failed to articulate our rights in the laws and instead encourage things like victim blaming. It fostered toxic masculinity and it completely erased and silenced minority groups. We as young people intimately knew what we needed and what we wanted to see out of our education system. We might not have had specialist jargon or you know, the most sophisticated of, of terminology, but we knew what we needed to, to see, what we needed to change. And that was education that happened proactively, so before young people started exploring intimate relationships. 
it was moving beyond the, the fear-based, the shameful and the stigmatised approach to sex education and instead looking at it in a positive light and as a rights-based manner, going beyond the really sort of basic discussions around reproduction and biology and instead let's talk about communication, let's talk about consent, let's talk about pleasure. And most importantly, it was genuinely embedding intersectionality. Joyce and I faced scrutiny and we faced doubt from all angles. We heard the word no many times over the first three years of Consent Labs from schools who absolutely dismissed the value of young people and embraced the status quo of the education system at that time. I'll never forget the first school that agreed to work with us. Joyce and I had spent hours upon hours practising, preparing, refining the pitch that we were going to take to this school, you know, thinking about every single angle, every single argument, every single counter-argument that we might make to put forward our position and win them over. And at this point, we'd spent, you know, three years doing market research to figure out what do young people actually want alongside myself and Joyce. We'd built our education programs in collaboration with experts in the field, and we conducted multiple rounds of focus group to ensure that our programs, they were quality. So we'd done the work. The school agreed to run our education programs, which was monumental. Joyce and I were ecstatic. We spent hours and hours investing in preparation. And at that time, I was working full-time in banking and Joyce was studying full-time to become a doctor. So the hours that we put into prep was between 8pm to midnight every single night. And we did that because we cared and we were really excited about the change that we could see coming. Get to the day before the presentation, I get a call from the school, they want to pull out. The leadership team at the school don't believe that anything needs to change in terms of sex education and they definitely don't want to see that change coming from young people. It's too controversial. It was soul crushing. It was really hard and it was a moment where Joyce and I both questioned whether we had it in us to continue to fight for social change. Would that change ever happen? It would be two more years until the very public reckoning of 2021 that brought conversations of consent to the fore and society finally began to acknowledge the need for consent education. Think of names like Chanel Contos, Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins. They were monumental in bringing these conversations to a very public forum and really eliciting change, but they stood on the shoulders of, of many great researchers, academics and, and educators who had worked in the space previously. And 2021 was a real turning point for us at Consent Labs where we started to see an appetite for change finally. So those years of consistently hearing no was definitely challenging and, you know, looking back, I'm immensely proud of, of the journey of Consent Labs, but to be really vulnerable with you all, to a certain extent, I think they've ingrained or perhaps amplified a sense of self-doubt in me as a voice speaking for young people and on behalf of young people as to the value that I bring. And, you know, even in, in speaking or being offered to speak today, my, my gut reaction is, why me? Like, what do I have to offer to this group of people that someone else who's maybe older and more tenured wouldn't be able to offer more. So at times it has been challenging not to discredit my own voice because of those, those years of no, and it's a trap that I've, I've almost fallen into many times. But at the end of the day, I have to remind myself that lived experience means something and it, it actually means everything. And I think that, that challenge, you know, I haven't yet conquered right now. And what I'm really navigating is what does it mean to be a CEO? What does it mean to be a CEO who isn't white? who isn't a man, who isn't middle-aged. So to wrap up, I have two asks. Accelerating change, it's hard and it takes time. It's definitely not at all something that happens overnight. 
So if you're not making that change happen yourself, then I ask you to please look for, invest in and support organisations that are making change happen and the change that you, you yourself care about whether it's, you know, lending them your volunteer hours, maybe they don't, they don't have an expertise that you bring, whether it's donating to them, but overall trust what they, they know and they know their community if there's lived experience there. And secondly, do not discredit the value of young people. Consent Labs is a youth-led organisation, and I'm not saying that every organisation has to be run by young people, but I would most definitely encourage all of you to consider how much you involve young people in the strategic decisions that you make as an organisation. Young people are easy to dismiss, but don't mistake their passion and definitely don't mistake their ability. One really practical way to do that would be implementing something like a, a youth committee or a, a shadow advisory board made up of young people that can help inform the direction of your organisation or the decisions that you make. I think, if anything, the past two years have proven how powerful young people's voices can really be. The move for change specifically in this consent education or respectful relationship space that we've seen in the past two years has really been as a result of young people, despite the fact that it's been a long time coming. I know what young people want because I am a young person. I have or I have had the exact same questions as young people do today. I know where the gaps are in our education system and I know how I want them filled and that is my value and our value as young people. Thank you. When we think of gender equality in the workplace, have you ever considered the space industry? Dr. Elise Stevenson is a multi-award winning gender equality researcher and deputy director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at the National University. Her research focuses on gender, sexuality and leadership in frontier international relations, including researching space policy. According to Elise, the space industry in Australia is pitched to outgrow every other industry in Australia in 2024. So, how are we making it more inclusive? Elise's discussion provides a framework for ensuring women and other diverse groups are included in burgeoning industries and organisations. Well, thank you, everyone. It is such a thrill to be here. Um, as you heard, I'm Dr. Elise Stevenson, Deputy Director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at the ANU, founded and chaired by our only and first female Prime Minister, Julia Gillard. I'm a gender equality researcher, a political scientist, a national security scholar, and also an entrepreneur who's travelled over 75,000 kilometres around Australia by four-wheel drive, to tackle inequality at the frontiers. I'm talking things about climate change and climate action, international affairs, national security, intelligence, and even outer space. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why the hell is she travelling around so much studying these things? Why outer space? And also, what the hell is a frontier in the first place? Well, I'll get to those questions and more. But first, I wanted to start with the why. I became interested in gender equality in frontiers because in my area of research, the mandate for a long time has been that institutions started or founded in more gender equal times will be more gender equal. Well, frontiers by their very definition, even though they can be problematic, they are new areas of human endeavour. Now, I don't know about you, but if I 
talked about space. How many of you would know the representation of women in space X? Now, the statistics are pretty patchy, but from what we can ascertain, women only represent about 14% of the company. We don't have much gender on sexuality or ethnicity, and we can assume that they're much lower represented in leadership. Okay, what about government agencies, though? For a long time, I studied uh, women's leadership in international affairs agencies, and I studied the Australian Border Force, which was reportedly started as the first agency to have a gender-equal senior leadership team. Well, by three years later, that number had dipped to 33%. They'd regressed. Okay, but what about climate change, right? Climate change is another new frontier that we are rapidly trying to get around and stand up new institutions. Well, have you noticed that governments are now reorientating around supporting our kind of transition from fossil fuel industries to renewable industries? They call this a just transition. And the idea is that we help communities to transition so that no one gets left behind. Well, have you also noticed that all of those industries that are justly transitioning, along with all kinds of resourcing and support, just happen to be male-dominated industries? Okay, my final example. Uh, does anyone remember COVID? I don't know. Seems to still be lingering around a little bit. But COVID's another frontier. It shook our very foundations and made us take on new institutions and stand them up really rapidly. Does anyone remember the National COVID-19 Commission, though? When it was first formed, there was only two women out of total of nine representatives on board and little to no ethnic diversity to be seen. So we already know that when emergencies break out, gender is basically the first thing that gets forgotten. But why, if we have new institutions formed in more gender-equal times, are they not more gender-equal? I think that this has big ramifications in the area of space. To me, space is one of the ideal examples to think about how we'd remake the world if women were in charge at the start. In fact, it was actually the fear that uh, space would be settled, a word I use instead of colonised, because, well, we know why. But I was worried that it would be settled and that it would be settled by one kind of human, and I'm looking at you, Elon, that really drove me to do this research in the first place. I happened to be in Adelaide. I was interviewing Julia Gillard for my PhD. Elon was in town, and we just launched the first Australian space agency, coincidentally headed by a woman. So we had a new institution, but I wanted to know, did we have gender equality to go with it? Well, as mentioned, space is one of the few areas of human development that is still relatively new. Uh, NASA and Russia's space agencies only started in the 50s, and we've had 70-odd other space agencies formed since. Ukraine, United Kingdom and the Philippines are an exception to the chronic underrepresentation we're seeing in the space industry. And Ukraine's in a war zone. Progress is at best patchy and sporadic, and across the world, women represent only roughly 20% of the institution internationally. We're still not standing in a space of equality. Major gaps exist everywhere from space industries themselves to uh, security to leadership and beyond. It doesn't just stop with representation, though. Representation by itself doesn't equal equality. I'm also concerned about things like procurement, language, technology, you name it. In fact, did you know that globally only 1% 
of total global procurement goes to women-owned businesses. Did you also know that by 2024, that's next year, the space industry is pitched to outgrow every other industry in Australia, growing at a 7.1% annualised rate? Where are the women and why aren't we talking about them in the space industry? Language also matters. Are you as sick of the terms for all men and mankind or colonising space, the moon and Mars as I am? The use of gendered and colonial language contributes to mythology, narrative, laws, media and debate that is centred around men and mankind and the exploitation of people and resources that actually benefits no one. The perpetuation of this kind of gendered and colonial language means that space isn't actually a place for us. If we only talk about mankind, then where does that leave women? Tech and resourcing also matters. You might have noticed that uh, on the 25th of March 2019, NASA announced its first all-female spacewalk. Days later, they cancelled it. They didn't have enough spacesuits to fit the women. That's only one example. They almost sent astronaut Sally Ride to space for one week with 100 tampons. And let's not forget the fact that space medicine and science is often still based on the white male body. Ultimately, the frontiers matter to me as ensuring that our technological progress does not outpace our social values is critical and sets a major precedent in space. We do know that inequalities tend to be institutionalised, built on over time and successively developed upon. Our best chance to get it right is therefore at the start. For me, this is really why I started my research travelling around in a four-wheel drive in a tiny home across rural Australia. My research, my entrepreneurial life, and my kind of life journey to date is one that I've felt has been lived at the edge. Long before COVID made remote work cool or even possible, I interviewed everyone from ambassadors to defence commanders from the middle of the Western Desert or the banks of the Barker. If we are to understand the impact of climate change on women all across Australia, then we can't do it from urban elite Canberra. If we are to understand the effect of space technology on disparate communities across Australia, we have to understand, well, how are they using space technologies and communications to connect to opportunities, to each other, to entrepreneurship? If we are to ponder humanity's role in space, then we have to be having these conversations now. And if we want to be a leader for gender equality internationally, then we actually have to start from home. You've heard from me in my research, but I'm one of many at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at the ANU. We really exist not to fix women. We want to fix systems. We want to be intersectional in all we do, and we want to ensure that our research is used for policy and for practice. Whether you're interested in space or not, enshrining gender and other forms of equality at the frontiers matters. Space is the canary in the coal mine for me. If we can't get space right, when we are at this point of the greatest gender equality we've perhaps ever had, then the ramifications for millennia more are major. If we can change the trajectory now by even one degree, then we can fundamentally change the trajectory of human development and equality going forwards. Thank you. What an incredible pair of women. Their two changemakers will certainly be keeping an eye on. Thanks again to Dr. Elise Stevenson and Angelique Wan. 
This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.